Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 38, The First Crusade. Today we will leave Henry IV to fend for himself. Instead we will be looking at the First Crusade, and more specifically, the role of Germans in that First Crusade. A word of warning, in this episode we will have to discuss extreme violence, religiously motivated crimes and suicide. I will give a specific warning when we get there, feel free to skip from that point onwards. I will make sure that you can pick up seamlessly at episode 39. Last week we briefly talked about Pope Urban's famous speech in the field outside the city of Clermont in France that kicks off the Crusades. I must confess that I took a bit of artistic license there and put words into Urban's mouth that reflect only one of the five different versions of that speech. Admittedly, it's one that he's written himself. I felt that that was okay, given that, by and large, the gist of that speech is the same in all five versions. Urban calls upon the Christian faithful to free the Holy Land from the infidels. I will not give you a full rundown of the whole of the First Crusade. There are a number of excellent indie podcasts on the topic, namely from my old colleague from a different world, Nick Holmes, who has a great show called Byzantium and the Crusades, and obviously Sharon Eastor's epic History of the Crusades. And if you want to read about the Crusades, check out Stephen Runciman's three books on it. Brilliantly written, and still for me, the go-to source. Though we are not going through the Crusades in detail, there are some elements that had a bearing on German history. And the first of those is the question, why did Urban ask for a crusade at that exact point in time? And even more importantly, why was his call successful now? He was not the first pope to call for Christian knights to aid in the fight against the infidels. There might have been a call for a crusade as far back as 1010 under Pope Sergius IV. Pope Alexander II supported the recruitment of Christian knights in the fight against Muslims in Spain and Sicily. And in 1074, Gregory VII proposed a march on Jerusalem to none other than the Emperor Henry IV, the man he would excommunicate just a year later. So what are the reasons it worked this time, and when it had not worked before? Reason number one was the rise and rise in lay piety that lay behind the church reform movement. As economic conditions improved, people began seeking self-actualization which in the 11th century society meant finding a way to get to heaven. The Crusades offered a nearly perfect deal. If you do something, i.e. travel to the Holy Land to free the sites of Christ's birth, life and passion, you will be automatically cleansed of all your sins and you get a free ticket to heaven. It is the same logic that is behind gym memberships and yoga classes. The difference is that if you're halfway through your yoga class, you realize that tripod handstand with lotus legs is not for you, you simply stay home numbing your bad conscience with a cup of cocoa. If you go on crusade, halfway through meant you are somewhere in Anatolia with no food, no horse, and under attack from hostile locals. And reason number two was, again, that self-same economic growth, which had driven piety, had also resulted in a surge in population leaving the world with an excess of younger sons and daughters. These young people had no chance of an inheritance, and there was little chance of gaining land by force after the expansion of the realm of the Christian faith towards the east and the north had stalled a hundred years earlier. The population pressures reached bursting point in the last ten years thanks to a series of droughts, freezing cold winters and other freak weather events 
that destroyed the crops. Reason number three was the weakness of the Truce of God movements. As central authority had almost vanished in France and deteriorated in the Empire, the Church attempted to maintain some semblance of security by making the feuding lords and castellans swear on powerful relics that they would refrain from fighting on certain days of the week and holy days. That was a suboptimal system to start with, since on the free days, feuding, which actually means killing of each other's peasants and burning of their fields, was perfectly okay. Moreover, these arrangements tended to be forgotten after a few years and normal service resumed until the bishop called another truce. The Crusades offered a perfect way of reducing feuding, since the most aggressive armoured horsemen would join the Crusades in search of riches or just sport, whilst those who stayed behind swore not to attack the lands of the absent Crusaders. The reason number four was the one officially given, i.e. that Jerusalem needed to be freed. It is also the least compelling. By the time Urban II had made his stirring speech, Jerusalem had been in Muslim hands for 460 years. Jerusalem was captured in 636 by an army of the Caliph Umar, the father-in-law of Muhammad. As had been the case in most conquests during the Caliphate, the Arabs did not force the locals to convert to Islam. That did not mean that they could live as they pleased. They did have to pay special taxes, could only maintain their old places of worship, but not build new ones, and were generally treated as second-class citizens. But there was little persecution, and the Arabs did not mind in the slightest if Christian tourists came and generously spent their gold and silver. As long as the pilgrims behaved and paid for services, they were most welcome. In the early 11th century, travel to Jerusalem had become relatively easy. The Byzantine Empire had recovered from the initial dual assault by the Arabs and the Bulgars. It ruled over a coherent landmass from the Hungarian border to Syria. Hence, pilgrims could either travel through Germany and Hungary and enter the Eastern Roman Empire in Belgrade, or get there by crossing the Adriatic from Bari to what is now Durazzo in Albania. Once inside the Eastern Roman Empire, the excellent roads would bring them via Constantinople and Anatolia to Antioch. Another 200 kilometers on, the pilgrims would enter the Caliphate in Tartus in Syria, from where it was just 500 kilometers to Jerusalem. The journey would take about a year, but was not much more dangerous or more strenuous than travel in the Middle Ages anyway. The comparative ease of the journey meant that pilgrim numbers surged. There were pilgrim hospices run by monks along the way, including the famed Hospice of St. John in Jerusalem, that had been set up in the 7th century, well before the Crusades. So, for instance, in 1064-65 a large pilgrimage set off from Germany. It was led by Archbishop Siegfried of Mainz and comprised, amongst others, the bishops William of Utrecht, Otto of Regensburg and Gunther von Bamberg. This pilgrim group numbered somewhere between 7,000 and 12,000, including women and children looking to see the holy sites. After 1064, the journey had become more dangerous. The Caliphate had begun to crumble under its own internal problems and attacks from the Seljuk Turks. Turks been around for a long time, controlling the lands between the Caliphate and India, and in the 11th century they began exploring opportunities arising from the weakness of the Caliphs. A long conflict between Arabs and Turks ensued, during which warlords carved out smallish territories that regularly changed hands once the two major Islamic powers, the Fatimids and the Turkish Sultans, tried to gain control over the Levant. 
and at the same time the Turks had begun attacking first Armenia and then the Byzantine Empire itself. The Byzantines had their own problems as the Macedonian dynasty had failed to produce a male heir. The empresses Zoe and Theodora held things together for 30 years after the death of the great emperor Basil II. But when Empress Theodora died in 1056, the state fell into a civil war, as a succession of civil and military potentates vied for the throne. In the midst of this infighting, the Turks advanced. In 1071 they won their great victory at Manzikart. Though they did not immediately take advantage of the defeat of the emperor, Seljuk warlords would capture most of Anatolia during the 20 years that followed. Bottom line was that by 1095 the Byzantine Empire no longer controlled the route across Anatolia, nor could the caliphs offer safe passage across Syria, Lebanon and Palestine. Pilgrims were molested and occasionally relieved of their possessions. There were even some cases where the travellers were provided with accelerated entry into heaven. In other words, the route to Jerusalem had become dangerous because of the absence of a central authority. What wasn't the case was that a central authority blocked the route to Jerusalem, as Pope Urban and his preachers had claimed. Realistically, without the Crusades, a situation in the Levant would probably have stabilized after some time, and whoever had won the contest would have reopened the lucrative pilgrim route again. Instead, we ended up with a conflict that in some ways is still continuing today. And now reason number five, which is purely political. It kicked off with Alexius Komnenos, Emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire, asking the Pope whether he would be allowed to recruit some mercenaries in the West to fight against the Muslims. Well, that might well be what he meant, but what Urban understood is that Alexius asked him for help fighting the Muslims. Pope Urban received the appeal in 1095 and pondered it on his journey to Clermont. Clermont had initially been scheduled to be an important church council, but no one expected a call to free the holy sites of Christendom. This great plan must have formed in his head as he travelled up the Rhone River. His eureka moment might even have come when he stopped his former home, the Abbey of Cluny, to consecrate the second largest church in Christendom. Because as we all know, Speyer is the biggest church in Christendom at that time. Urban II realized that a successful expedition to Jerusalem under the leadership of the church would resolve all the conflicts and problems of the last decades in one fell swoop. Just think back and ask yourself why the empress had such a stronghold over the church for so long. Where does their claim to lead Christianity come from? It starts with Charlemagne, who could claim that he had expanded the reach of the word of Christ into the pagan lands of the Saxons and that he had defended Christianity against the Saracens in Spain. And when Otto the Great came to Rome in 962, he could claim the conversion of the Poles and the defeat of the Hungarians as the Lord's work. Under Otto II, the eastward expansion stopped following the Slav uprising. But Otto III reinvigorated the idea of the emperor as the bringer of the Christian faith to the east through his pilgrimage to Gniezno. But after that, progress stalled. The Kievan Rus went to the Orthodox Church, the Lithuanians remained pagan until 1387, and the empress failed to control the pagan lands between Poland and Saxony, 
let alone convert the locals. Expansion of the Christian faith was now the job of the Christian Spanish kingdoms and the Normans in Sicily. What these had in common were two things. One, they were fighting Muslims, not pagans, and secondly, they were both vassals of the Pope, not of the Emperor. The logical conclusion from here is that if the Gregorian reformers could scale up this effort, the leadership of Christendom would permanently shift from the Empress to the Papacy. Henry IV, or whoever was his successor, would have to submit to the Pope, and the Antipope Clement III would lose all his remaining support. The cherry on the cake is that if the expedition was successful, the Emperor in Constantinople would be compelled to acknowledge the Pope as the spiritual lead, ending the schism between the Latin and Orthodox Christianity. And then, finally, all the princes will kiss the feet of the Pope, as Gregory VII had set out in the Dictatus Pape of 1075. So all of this made overwhelming sense to the men and women standing in the November mud outside the walls of Clermont, as it made sense to the congregations all across France, England and Italy. Whilst he was still at Clermont, Urban II received the first major pledge to go on crusade by Count Raymond of Toulouse. And soon the offers to take the cross came in hard and fast. The brother of the King of France, Hugh Vermandois, signed up, as did the Count of Flanders and the Duke of Normandy. The Normans in Sicily quickly realized that this effort was an easier way to gather some lands in the east than going it alone, as they had before. Hence, Bohemond, son of Robert Giscard, and his nephew Tancred joined up as well. These high aristocrats began pawning their lands to raise funds to equip and to feed an army for a campaign much longer than anyone had undertaken before in medieval Europe. There was, however, one subsegment of the European nobility who could not see the point of this at all the German bishops and the high aristocrats. It was quite obvious that Henry IV would rather be hung beneath a beehive covered in honey than join any of Urban II's schemes. And that would go for most of his allies as well. And if Henry and his mates are not going, then the rebel dukes and counts had to stay as well. They could hardly expect Henry IV to respect the crusaders' immunity issued by Urban II. There we go. A great war is on, and the Germans stay home. Who would have guessed? All the Germans? No, not all the Germans. One of the great vassals of the Empire would go on crusade, Godfrey of Bouillon, Duke of Lower Lothringia. Godfrey was free to do what he wanted, as he had made his peace with the Emperor back in 1087, but was not close enough to him to be a target of the rebels. Godfrey raised one of the largest crusader armies, became the crusaders' unacknowledged leader, and was ultimately crowned the first king of Jerusalem. Godfrey's leadership eclipsed the official leadership established by Urban II, which was that of the bishop Ademar de Puy, and with the crusade ultimately under secular, not papal leadership, the big political bet of Urban II did not come through. The loss of church leadership in the crusade was not the only thing that did not go according to plan. 
while Serban II organised his professional crusader army, the idea of a crusade went viral. Several preachers, usually monks, began calling the common people to go to the Holy Land. Not next year when all the preparation is done, but right now. Salvation and eternal life is waiting for you. Go now, drop everything and come along. The most famous of these preachers was Peter, an itinerant monk. Stephen Runciman describes him as follows. Peter was an oldish man, born somewhere near Amiens. His contemporaries knew him as Little Peter, but later the hermit's cape that he habitually wore brought him the surname The Hermit, by which he is better known to history. He was a man of short stature, swarthy, and with a long, lean face, horribly like the donkey he always rode, and which was revered almost as much as he was. He went barefoot and his clothes were filthy. He ate neither bread nor meat, but fish, and drank wine. Despite his unassuming physique, he clearly inspired people. Guibert Nogent tells us that, whatever he said or did, it seemed like something half-divine. Peter had started preaching almost immediately after the Council of Clermont, and he had gathered supporters amongst the poor, the townsfolk, and the younger sons of the knightly families of northern France, of Flanders, and the Rhineland. So that when he appeared in Cologne in April 1096, his peasant army had grown to 15,000 people. There was no way that such a mass of people could be fed and watered anywhere in 11th century Western Europe. They were condemned to keep moving. An initial contingent of about 7,000 set off right after Easter. This group travelled through Hungary and entered Byzantine territory at Belgrade. There were some minor hiccups along the way as nobody was expecting the crusaders to arrive that early, but they managed to get to Constantinople in the end. Peter stayed behind in Germany for a few weeks preaching, and that refilled his ranks back up to 20,000 again, mostly men, but also women and children hungry for salvation. They as well set off on the land route to Constantinople. Everything went well until they reached the border between Hungary and Byzantium. It seemed the Hungarian governor of the border fortress of Semlin was trying to instill some discipline in the huge horde. Things went out of control over the sale of a pair of shoes in the bazaar. An altercation turned into a brawl, which turned into a riot, which turned into a pitched battle, at the end of which the Hungarian city burned down and its garrison was slaughtered. The Byzantine governor watched this in horror from the other side of the Danube. His patchneck soldiers tried to establish order, but they quickly realised had no chance against that huge press of humanity. The garrison fled to Nish, with the inhabitants of Belgrade in tow. The pilgrims stormed Belgrade, but finding little of value, and so burned it down. As I said in the beginning, there are scenes of extreme violence and religiously motivated crimes in the sections that follow. If you are concerned about the impact these could have on you or on other people around you, please close the episode here should be able to follow the narrative from the next episode, episode 39. After the events of Belgrade, the Emperor sends what must have been a regular army as an escort to lead the rebel to Constantinople. Still too large to stay anywhere for long, the horde is packed off across the Bosphorus towards the frontier. Though they were told to wait for the whole army to assemble, 
they kept moving slowly towards Nicaea, the capital of the Turkish Sultan. As they moved, there made no difference between Muslims or Greek Christians. Either was robbed of their possessions, their wives and daughters raped, and the men tortured. Months on the road has ripped the last bit of Christian charity out of them. What this army, now often called the Tafurs, looked like is best described by Norman Cohn in his book Millennium. Quote, Barefoot, shaggy, clad in racked sackcloth, covered in sauce and filth, living on roots and grass and also at times of the roasted corpses of their enemies, the Tafurs were a ferocious band that any country they passed through was utterly devastated. Too poor to afford swords and lances, they yielded clubs weighted with lead, pointed sticks, knives, hatchets, shovels, hoes and catapults. And when they charged into battle, they gnashed their teeth as though they meant to eat their enemies alive as well as dead. End quote. As this army came up against the Sultan's capital of Nicaea, they believed they could take the city with the help of the Lord. But against the disciplined Turkish troops that had defeated the greatest powers of the East, the peasants stood no chance. They were ambushed, and within minutes their undisciplined march turned into a chaotic rout. They were back in their camp even before the older folk, who were left behind had even woken up. There was no real resistance. Soldiers, women and priests were killed before they even moved. The prisoners were murdered except for the boys and the girls that were of pleasant enough appearance to be sold as slaves. No more than 3,000 of the 25,000 who set off from Cologne survived. They joined the main crusades and some of them even entered Jerusalem, creating a bloodbath amongst the Muslims whereby the city was covered knee-deep in blood and gore. Peter the Hermit had left some of his disciples behind in Cologne to gather even more followers for his doomed adventure. Three leaders emerged, Volkmar, Gottschalk and Count Emich of Leiningen. Volkmar set off first, followed a few weeks later by Gottschalk. Emich, Count of Leiningen's army, was a little bit different. Though equally driven by lay piety, his followers tended to include more knights and counts and less peasants. And he had better access to information. One piece of information he found particularly useful was about Godfrey of Bouillon. Godfrey, great noble and future king of Jerusalem, had found it hard to raise funds for his expedition. Relief had come from an unexpected source. Calonymus, the chief rabbi of the great Jewish community of Mainz, had offered Godfrey 500 pieces of silver. The equally famed Jewish community of Cologne paid the same. That generosity was prompted by rumours that Godfrey had vowed to avenge the death of Christ with the blood of the Jews before he set off on crusade. I mean, I would be the last to suggest that Godfrey may have spread the rumour himself or actually made such a vow. A man who supervised the valiant slaughter of the civil population of Jerusalem and the burning of its Jewish congregation in their synagogue is obviously beyond reproach. So let's talk briefly about the status of Jews in the empire. I'm relying here on Peter Wilson's great book, The Holy Roman Empire, and according to him, Charlemagne had revived the late imperial patronage of the Jews. 
They played an important role in the economy as they were able to sell slaves from the eastern pagan lands to Spain, where they would become slave soldiers. Under the Ottonians, the imperial protection was inconsistent. Otto II allocated the protection of the Jewish communities to his bishops, whilst Henry II expelled 2,000 Jews from Mainz in 1012, but then had to revoke this decree the following year. In 1090, our friend Henry IV implemented a wide-ranging reform. He issued a general privilege to the Jews and made himself the Advocatus Imperatoris Judaica, or the general protector of the Jews in the empire. This arrangement persisted until the end of the empire in 1806. The safeguarding of legal, economic and religious rights became a prerogative of the emperor. Implementation of that varied throughout time, and we will certainly talk about the successes and failures of this construct as we go along. But it should be noted that the general rule for stood over 700 years, and as it was woven into the fabric of the law, granted what Wilson calls a surprising level of autonomy to the Jewish population, notwithstanding their status as second-class citizens. But we are in the year 1096, and Henry IV is bottled up in Verona, and his protection isn't worth much. All that gave Count Emich of Leiningen an idea. Maybe the Jewish communities along the route could be made to support the cause. He started in Speyer on May 9th, but struggled to get past the bishop's troops who protected their Jewish community, probably in exchange for a generous donation to the still ongoing building works of the great cathedral. Or maybe for once, a prelate was doing his job. Note that the German bishops had been specifically ordered by Henry IV to protect the Jewish communities after he had heard about some persecutions in northern France. After his failure in Speyer, Emich and his rebel moved a bit further on to Worms. There he spread the rumour that the Jews had drowned a Christian and used the water he had died in to poison the wells. That brought the town folk onto the side of the Crusaders, and they broke into the Jewish homes and killed everyone who was not willing to convert. Many Jews had fled into the bishop's palace. Emich and his men broke down the doors, and despite the bishop's pleading, killed all of them, men, women and children, a total of 500 dead. From Worms, he then travelled to Mainz. If you have any notion of geography, you might realise that Emich and his followers are travelling north, not exactly the direction of Jerusalem. In Mainz, Archbishop Rothard had closed the gates against the Crusaders. But Emich's arrival triggered riots within the city, during which a Christian was killed. The rioters opened the gates, and Emich's forces enter. Again, the Jews seek shelter in the bishop's palace, and again, it is overrun. Resistance against the overwhelming numbers was futile. Some may have been prepared to convert, or at least pretend to convert, but many preferred to die for their faith, either from the enemy's swords or by suicide. Here's the report of Salomon bin Simpson about what happened next. Quote, as soon as the enemy came into the courtyard, they found some of the very pious there with our brilliant master, Isaac ben Moses. He stretched out his neck and his head they cut off first. The others, wrapped in their praying shawls, 
set by themselves in the courtyard, eager to do the will of their creator. They did not care to flee into the chambers to save themselves for this temporal life, but out of love they received upon themselves the sentence of God. The women there girded their loins with strength and slew their sons and their daughters and then themselves. Many men too plucked up courage and killed their wives, their sons, their infants. The tender and delicate mother slaughtered the babe she had played with. All of them, men and women, arose and slaughtered one another. The maidens and the young brides and the grooms looked out of the windows, and in a loud voice cried, Look and see, O our Lord, what we do for the sanctification of thy great name, in order not to exchange you for a hanged and crucified one. Solomon then recounts the story of Rachel, the daughter of Rabbi Isaac ben Asher. Quote, in the bitterness of her soul, she said to her friend, Do not slay Isaac in the presence of his brother Aaron, lest Aaron see his brother's death and run away. The woman then took the lad Isaac, who was small and very pretty, and she slaughtered him, while the mother spread out her sleeves to receive the blood, catching it in her garment instead of a basin. And when the child Aaron saw that his brother Isaac was slain, he screamed again and again, Mother, mother, do not butcher me, and ran and hid under a chest. She had two daughters also, who still lived at home, Bella and Matrona, beautiful young girls, the children of her husband, Rabbi Judah. The girls took the knife and sharpened it themselves, that it should not be nicked. Then the women bared their necks and sacrificed them to the Lord God of hosts, who has commanded us not to change his pure religion, to be perfect with him, as it is written. Perfect shall you be with the Lord your God. When this righteous woman had made an end of sacrificing her three children to their creator, she then raised her voice and called out to her son Aaron, Aaron, where are you? You also I will not spare, nor will I have any mercy. And she dragged him out for his foot from under the chest, where he had hidden himself, and she sacrificed him before God the High and Exalted. She put her children next to her body, two on each side, covering them with their two sleeves, and there they lay, struggling in the agony of death. When the enemy seized the room, they found her sitting and wailing over them. Show us the money that is under your sleeves, they said to her. But when it was slaughtered children, they saw they struck her and killed her upon her children, and her spirit flew away and her soul found peace at last. Then the crusaders began to give thanks in the name of the hanged one, because they had done what they wanted with all those in the room of the bishop, so that not a soul escaped. Unquote. This slaughter cost another possibly more than 800 lives. Emich then tried his luck in Cologne, but was less successful as the news had arrived before him, and the Jews had left the city or hid with their Christian neighbours. Some of his troops separated from the main army and diverted even further away from Jerusalem, attacking the Jewish communities in Trier and Metz. This group then tried to rejoin their valiant leader near Cologne, killing Jews in Neuss, Wevelinghofen, Eller and Xanten. Not finding them, they returned home, their holy work done. Meanwhile, the two other groups under Volkmar and Gottschalk heard about Emich's pursuits and emulated their efforts by murdering Jews in Magdeburg, Prague, 
Regensburg, to name a few. None of these three groups made it to Jerusalem. By now, the king of Hungary had become wary of these peasant crusaders. They were held up at the border, and when they began raiding and pillaging, the king deployed his armoured cavalry, who killed and dispersed them. Emmy's unit was the last to arrive. They fought a veritable battle with the Hungarians and then besieged the border fortress of Weissenburg. The arrival of a royal army and the sortie of the garrison brought that to an end. Emmy's troops fled in panic. Emmy himself returned to his possessions in Leiningen, forever disgraced. Disgraced not for his crimes, but for not fulfilling his vow to go to Jerusalem. I leave it for you to decide whether the First Crusade was a glorious moment in European history, as for German history can only look at this as a moment of shame and horror. It was the first large-scale persecution of the Jews in the Middle Ages, and it contained all the hallmarks of what was to come, the blood libel, the claim of the poisoned wells, and the inability of the authorities to protect them. Next week, we will return to the roller coaster that is the life of Henry IV. He is back in Germany, reconciled with the southern German dukes, and all could now go smoothly. But history still has one last humiliation in store for him, the longest ruling, or not really ruling, medieval emperor. I hope to see you then. And remember, the History of the Germans podcast is advertising free thanks to the generous support from patrons. And you can become a patron too and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is sign up at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website historyofthegermans.com. You'll find all the links in the show notes. <laughs>